Go. All right. We're going to be starting today on Mark chapter 12, verse 13. So if you would, please turn there. Uh, And as you do, let's recall that the book of Mark intends to give us a picture of who Jesus is. Mark wants us to see as much of the Savior as he can pack into his gospel. Because at the end of it, the question that Jesus will pose to one of, the question that Jesus will pose to us is the same one that he's posed to every other person who has since lived. Who is it that you say that I am? Now last week Tim did a great job showing us the authority of Jesus, how it is not derived from the authority of men, least of all from the Jewish leaders of his day. Today we're going to look at how Jesus wants us to govern ourselves before all authority, including his. So with that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump right in. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And they said to him, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your perfect, holy word. We thank you for the message that you brought to us today. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, incapable of delivering a perfect message, and yet your Holy Spirit can do a perfect work in each heart that is here. So God, would you do that work? Make me smaller and you greater in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. From this text, the theme that I want you to walk away with is this. God grants authority to mankind. And we, as his image bearers, are called to subject ourselves to it. Again, God grants authority to mankind. And we, as his image bearers, are called to subject ourselves to it. The three points that I want to make today, one, we need to understand the encounter as it is written. Number two, I want to talk about bearing God's image. And then number three, I want to talk about bearing up under authority. So the first part, understanding the encounter. We'll begin by looking at the passage by first considering the parties approaching Jesus who are identified in verse 13 as the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians make for very strange bedfellows. The Pharisees were one of four major sects in first century Judaism. They were incredibly conservative interpreters of Jewish law, and they would pad out scriptural mandates with additional restrictions. Now, they also believed in a national theocracy, that Israel should be ruled by God and God alone. So they were an incredibly powerful part of the ruling Jewish elite at the time and begrudgingly abided by the occupation of Rome throughout the region. Now the other half of our belligerents today were the Herodians. 
These people were also Jews, but ones who embraced worldly culture and rule. So while the Herodians were also against Roman occupation, they wanted to see Israel ruled by a descendant of Herod the Great, hence the term. Their allegiance to Gentile power made them odious to groups like the Pharisees. So watching these two groups come together, one commentator noted, it would appear to be at best an awkward alliance forged more by a common enemy in Jesus than by any agreement among themselves. The leaders saw Jesus as their enemy because he threatened everything that they had built. Just before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, we read that he was in Jericho and that a great crowd was following him. A couple of days before the events of our text, Jesus makes a triumphal entry into Jerusalem as crowds line the streets, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then last week, Tim, in his amazing sermon, unpacked the previous story for us, where he leaves the Sanhedrin not humbled, but enraged, yet unable to do anything, because they fear the mass of people that, Jesus, that were holding Jesus in such high regard. So Jesus it is, is in Israel's most important city, during Israel's most important festival, with his ministry at a high point, literally and figuratively dismantling the status quo, and Israel's leadership is powerless to do anything about it. Another commentator at this point noted, the Pharisees hated him because he was disrupting their religious agenda, the Herodians because he threatened their political arrangements. They both wanted him dead. We find then that these parties can come together at least temporarily to try to trap Jesus. So they attempt to do so by asking him a question about the poll tax. Now this tax was instituted as a result of the census that took place around the time of Jesus' birth, the census that drove Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to be registered. The tax was levied against every person as a tribute that they had to pay to Rome simply for existing in a province that the Romans had taken by force in the first place. Now, in response to the census, a man named Judas of Galilee vehemently rejected it and encouraged Jews not to register their property or their families. Now, his ideology gained enough popularity that his followers became the fourth major sect of Judaism at the time, known as the Zealots. The Zealots believed it was both immoral and illegal for anyone to pay any tribute or taxes to Rome. Now, Acts chapter 5, verse 37, actually mentions Judas the Galilean by name and notes that he was killed and his followers were scattered. Now, even though the uprising was put down, the Zealots and their influence remain in the region throughout Jesus' lifetime. Not surprisingly, the subject of taxation in the region of Judea remained a hot-button topic. So here, the Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to capitalize upon this politically charged atmosphere by approaching Jesus with a question about Roman taxation. Now, as to the question itself being posed, it was actually intended to go poorly for Jesus no matter how he answered if he says the tax is legal, the Pharisees call him out as an ally of Rome. 
They would inflame the Jewish following that he had amassed, for who among them hadn't fallen victim to abuse, to bribery, or to violence at the hands of their Roman oppressors? Now, on the other hand, were Jesus to declare the taxation illegal, the Herodians would be up in arms that someone so aligned with zealot ideology is stirring up the crowd against the Roman Empire. Their hopes, laid out in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, would come to pass that they might deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now, in verse 13, the Greek word for trap is used only here in all the New Testament. It connotes a violent pursuit, as if one were catching an animal as if to eat it. The plan is to trap Jesus by his own words and to feed him either to the people or to the Roman Empire. Either way, the plan was foolproof. The Pharisees and the Herodians couldn't possibly fathom a response that would not go well for them. As it turns out, Jesus' response did not go well for them. We have to acknowledge first that Jesus is going into this encounter with eyes wide open. Despite the flattery that came with their approach, he is able to peel back the facade they present and reveal the true thoughts and intents of their heart. Now in verse 15, it says he knows their hypocrisy. In the parallel account in Matthew, it says that he perceived their malice. And in Luke, he called it their craftiness. Now, it's hard to paint a delegation in a worse light, and they appear to be living up to the denunciations that Jesus declared against them in the passage just prior to the scene that we read today. Now, the momentum of the conversation on the Pharisees and the, the, the momentum of the conversation shifts on the Pharisees and the Herodians immediately. Jesus responds with a demand, "Bring me a denarius and let me look at it," to which they comply. Now, the Roman denarius was the only coin in the empire acceptable for paying the poll tax. Rome had stamped the profile of Emperor Tiberius on one side, and around it put the phrase, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side of the coin, there was a woman sitting in a chair, and put atop her were the words, high priest. So on one side of the coin, we are elevating the emperor of Rome to a demigod status, and on the other side, we're elevating another individual to the most important religious figure in the empire. Not surprisingly, the Jewish leadership hated this coin, as everything about it stood in opposition to what they believed in and lived for. Nevertheless, they were able to produce one, and quickly which was immediately devastating to their argument. Even though they railed against Roman occupation and taxation, they were nevertheless willing participants in its governance and economy. By merely possessing the coin, it shows that they themselves were ready to pay the tribute they were using to entrap Jesus. Now, when Jesus asks them whose image is on the coin, he draws his audience to an important truth. The issue of image-bearing carried a heavy cultural and theological significance. The gist was that if something bore the image of someone, they were the rightful owner of that thing. So the coin, because it bore the image of Caesar, by definition, 
belonged to Caesar. This significance would not be lost on the Pharisees and the Herodians asking Jesus this question. Jesus' Jesus' response then to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's states to the group to give Caesar back his stuff. When Jesus then declares that they should render unto God the things that are God's, the implication could not be more important. For those in the audience, it would immediately set off alarms that Jesus is referring to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where the triune Godhead is bringing all of creation into existence. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Brothers and sisters, I want to pause here and focus on this second point because it is central to our understanding of this narrative. When one found themselves holding Caesar's denarius, everything about that coin's makeup was to accomplish two things. Now, the first thing that this coin did was to declare in no uncertain terms to whom it belonged. This was Caesar's coin. There was his face. There was his ideology. Everything about it was all him. But secondly, subtly, more importantly, the coin glorified its maker. Here, you're given pictures of two people, one purportedly beyond mortal, and the other a significant religious figurehead. The pictures and the text on the denarius wanted you to make the people you saw on it bigger in your mind's eye. One commentator wrote of this coin, it was, in effect, a portable idol promulgating pagan ideology. Jesus is taking this coin and waving it before all of us, saying, hello, do you see how effective this is? Its job is to point you back to Caesar, and it's doing an amazing job, even while it's sitting here in the palm of my hand. Now, guess what? Just as this coin bears the image of Caesar, you bear the image of God. Sure, this coin, it can pay your taxes, but can this coin dream up something to do and animate itself to do it? Can the face of a denarius laugh at a joke? Or can the high priest offer compassion to someone who's hurting? Can this coin ever be loving? Can it demonstrate a strength of character? These are all part of what it means for us to bear God's image, to take what we know about him and what he has imparted into us and to reflect it out into the world for everyone to see. Even though the coin can do nothing on its own, it still goes about from place to place, accomplishing the will of its creator. How much more then should we, who are granted life, to bear God's image and likeness, be sent out into the world and accomplish the will of the one who created us? To twist the commentator's own words, let us be, in effect, a portable witness promulgating God's ideology. Furthermore, imagine the vast difference that exists between a denarius and Caesar, between the coin that bears his resemblance and the man himself. Now consider your personhood, minted in the resemblance of God Almighty, and consider how much more majestic he must be in light of how amazing mankind is. 
If a coin can point to and revel in the glory of one man, how much more do we all then point to and revel in the glory of God himself? Jesus' answer is gutting for both parties. Their crafty, malicious hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Herodians is on full display at the end of this interaction. And how Jesus handled them, not just sets them back on their heels, but puts them in their place, exposing their character for what it truly is. J.C. Ryle summarized it well when he said, he bids the proud Pharisee not to refuse his dues to Caesar and the worldly Herodian not to refuse his dues to God. The crowd that witnessed this interaction was absolutely correct to marvel at Jesus. I find it an easy and obvious reaction that comes from understanding who he is, how he is more focused on God's honor above all other priorities, and how he sees us as image bearers to the one true God. Now for my third point, I want to spend some time breaking down a biblical application and understanding to Jesus' declaration, specifically as it relates to our relationship to the authority of others in our lives. Clearly, we are not first century Jews, living under the duress of foreign occupation, wondering if we should be paying tribute money to a dictator who thinks he's a demigod. Nevertheless, there are many lessons about the authority, about authority that we can draw from these verses, and I want to focus on two. The first is a more direct application to our following of authority, and the second is something this passage alludes to, namely, bearing up under difficult circumstances and difficult authorities. The direct application has to do with the issue of the government imposing restrictions or granting freedoms that we disagree with. We can each come up with a long, long, long list of harebrained laws that the government both enacts and enforces. This seeming futility is especially compounded when it affects us directly. No doubt, within this past week, you felt the socioeconomic impact of the government's presence in your life. This week will be no different, or the week after that. In fact, when the day finally comes for us to be called to go home to be with the Lord, the very place where you are finally laid to rest, if Uncle Sam has his way, must be in accordance with applicable local, state, and or federal law. Government authority is, in a word, inescapable. Most of the time, the implications are minor. For example, over this past New Year's, the state of California enacted a new law that affects the kinds of bin you need to throw your leftover food into. We've all had our personal opinions about such laws, but the point is that the state has the authority to create and enforce such legislation, which has a small but material impact on your life. But even when there are bigger issues at stake, the government there too has the authority to do what it deems is right. With the war in the Ukraine, the government response has been to sever economic ties with Russia by boycotting Russian goods and services, by imposing sanctions against the country. Over the coming weeks and months, the net effect of these changes could have significant implications on our day-to-day lives. Regardless of your opinion on the war in the Ukraine or our government's response to it, the United States has the authority to respond to Russia in the way that it did. This passage in the Bible speaks to how we should respond to government 
when it exerts its authority over our lives. In Jesus' answer, he portrays us at the center of two spheres of authority. The first sphere is the authority of men, human institutions, and other governmental powers. Outside of and completely containing that inner sphere is an outer sphere that represents God's absolute and comprehensive authority. Jesus does not out and out reject Caesar's claim of authority over Israel. But at the same time, he does indicate that his authority only goes so far. These two spheres imply that we as followers of Jesus cannot abstain from secular authority and yet embrace God's authority. Jesus shows us that to see God's Jesus shows us that God sees authority as a good thing, that God created it, and he grants to some people authority over other people. As image bearers of God, we need to recognize all authority as being divinely granted and therefore submit ourselves to it, not necessarily because the people in power are great, but because the God who permits them the power they have is a great God. Again, we should submit submit ourselves to all authority, not because the people in power are great, but because the God who granted them that authority is great. This passage in Mark is not the only place where the Bible speaks to the issue issue of governmental authority. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, Paul writes the following, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed." As Paul said, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And later, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Now, you may find yourself thinking, but surely Paul didn't know what life was going to be like in 2022 in the United States or elsewhere. If only he knew the kinds of leaders that were atop the highest seats in the most powerful countries, surely he would have written something different. Now, I believe the heart of a genuinely interested soul looking to see God's perspective on these matters could find themselves having thoughts along those lines. I know I do. The Reverend Richard Halverson 
served as a chaplain of the United States Senate from 1981 to 1995. He had some thoughts on this topic that I trust will help things settle for us here. He said, to be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state, just as men, because of sin, have abused and misused every other institution in history, including the Church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be human government in order to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Brothers and sisters, let's be honest with ourselves here. As far as the government goes, whatever bad things we have to deal with and however bad we think we may have it, we don't have it as bad as the Israelites did during the first century. And aside from the physical presence of Jesus, whatever benefits they had going for them does not hold a candle to what we have in the United States in 2022. So if Paul and Jesus and Peter, whom we're going to get to in a minute, can write the words that they wrote to the people of Israel under Roman occupation and to the Gentiles in the surrounding areas in the first century when they wrote those things, how much more should these commandments apply to us as well? Now, I do want to build one fence here around the reach of government authority and the conditions when God does not just permit but calls us to disobey the government. Specifically, the government cannot command us to do something that is contrary to what God has already commanded. I do not mean when we are able to draw a very thin, fuzzy line from some commandment in the Bible to counteract some government imposition that we find disagreeable. No, I'm speaking to when a human institution is obvious in its attempt to go outside the permitted sphere and usurp God's authority. There are many examples of this in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. Daniel refusing to stop praying and instead threw open his windows in his home so everybody could see where his allegiance lay. After being arrested for preaching the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, the disciples are strictly charged not to speak anymore, to which they reply in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Although God's authority always is over man, even so, He wills that human governments thrive and exert the power that he grants them. Since God has permitted human institutions and the people in power to exist and rule as God's agents, our default position regarding these authorities should be to voluntarily subject ourselves to them. The one narrow case where we are required to object is when man's authority attempts to overreach into violating a direct scriptural mandate. Now, while the lesson about following human authority is clear from the passage, this passage in Mark also alludes to the second item I wanted to talk about, which is the biblical notion of enduring suffering graciously. The Israelites in our story this afternoon were subject to an oppressive empire, 
that was abusive and exploitative to live under. Though there are several passages in Scripture that speak to it, Peter addressed this topic in chapter 2 of his first epistle when he wrote, verse 18 through 21, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But what if when you do good, oh, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Now, I will be the first to admit, this is a very difficult standard to live up to. Even just reading these verses, I can feel the self-preservation and defensiveness rising within me. Even so, Peter could not be more clear in his admonition. He makes it clear that the actions we're being subjected to are evil, and he does not condone the injustices that we suffer. Now, I also want to be very clear here that God does not call us to suffer for suffering's sake. Indeed, there are many stories in the Bible where God calls people to, people to flee danger or persecution or other troubles. Jacob fleeing Laban, David fleeing Saul, Paul fleeing the Israelite leaders in Jerusalem. There are many, many more. In each of these cases, they had the means and the desire to escape the trouble that was before them. But the circumstances Peter is writing about here are the kind we cannot or choose not to get out of. As a point of illustration, I know Ron mentioned this article a couple weeks back, but I cannot think of a more relevant example than this one today. On February 24th, the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine unjustly and without cause, a Ukrainian pastor wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition website talking about the situation over there. Similar to the, the pastor that Bill mentioned earlier this morning as we were praying, um, Despite the exodus that's happening in the Ukraine, where more than 3 million Ukrainians have left the war-torn region, this pastor and his church have elected to stay and help. He writes this, We've recently conducted several trainings on performing first aid. People are learning how to apply a tourniquet, stop bleeding, apply bandages, and managing airways. These lay people aren't going to become doctors, but this has given them confidence to care for their neighbors if necessary. Can you even imagine this? In what kind of a reality do lay people get basic training in battlefield medicine because in the coming weeks, someone else in the congregation might need it? This is actually happening on the other side of the world. Okay, after church on Sunday day, Bill's going to be one line over here. William's going to start one line over here. William's going to be dealing with causing bleeding to stop. And Bill over here is going to be working on tourniquet management. This is happening. The kind of grace and resolve required to walk out such a calling is on a completely different playing field than the one that I'm used to. But now listen to the pastor's purpose and vision for his church during this circumstance. While the church may not fight like a nation, 
we still believe we have a role to play in the struggle. We will shelter the weak, serve the suffering, and mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. His purpose is drawing a straight line between bearing up under evil and injustice and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a profound connection and one that Peter himself makes as he continues to write about suffering while doing good. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Church family, the gospel is founded on enduring undue hardship. Jesus Christ willingly took upon himself beatings, torture, and crucifixion to bear upon himself my sins and yours. The graciousness that he displayed wasn't just to endure the occupation of a nation, but to absorb a great pool of rebellion and hatred that humanity has been amassing against God since the creation of the world. It is only by this payment that we are forgiven before the sight of God and with the power of his Holy Spirit we can follow in his footsteps and endure through the circumstances that we face. If I could ask the worship team to please join me at the front of the stage, I'd like to close us out today with three points of application. Number one, beware the Pharisee and the Herodian in your own heart. It is all too easy to look at the antagonists in these stories and distance ourselves from them. After all, Clearly, we're on Jesus' side and wouldn't be caught dead sitting on the, op- on the side of the opposition, right? But the reality of our hearts is that we want to choose our own paths for ourselves more than not. It's easy to feed our inner Pharisee and push back against human institutions, just as it is easy to feed our inner Herodian and push back against the authority of God. So let us be vigilant. Let us be suspicious of ourselves to make sure that the thoughts and intentions of our heart are truly motivated by God's priorities and not our own. The second point of application, let us see others like Jesus does as image bearers of God. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? If only you saw yourself the way that I see you, you'd know what I was talking about. Perhaps you've even said this to yourself or somebody has said this to you. In this passage, Jesus is saying this to us. When he looks at us, he is aware of us first as image bearers of the Father before anything else. How would our lives change if our perception of one another shifted even slightly towards the direction of how Jesus sees us? I'm willing to bet sometime in the next week, there's going to be somebody in your life that is really going to challenge you. It could be a coworker, it could be a spouse, it could be a sibling, it will definitely be a child if there is one of those in your life. 
You'll probably have somebody in mind right now, even as I'm speaking. See them as someone who bears the image of their creator, as one whom Jesus came into the world to treat with mercy and kindness. And let us go and do the same. And then finally, third application, trust in God amid your hardship. Theodore Beza, a Protestant theologian and contemporary of John Calvin, said it this way, it belongs to the church of God to receive blows rather than to inflict them. But she is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Many of you are going through some incredibly difficult situations, suffering hardships that may be unjust. Few around you may even know what you're going through, and even fewer realize the extent of how hard things are. We draw from this passage two things to keep in mind, a challenge and an encouragement that I hope re-energize you, even if a little, for the ordeal. The challenge is to see yourself as God sees you, doing a gracious thing in His sight. As you do good, you are a light to everyone around you, that you are living for something greater than yourself. And the encouragement is that God really does care for you and for what you're going through. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the many lessons that we draw from scripture. Thank you for showing us that we are your image bearers, that as you created humans, you gave them dominion. You gave us authority that we would have institutions that we could follow, structures that you have put into the world that we could honor you by subjecting ourselves to them. And God, you have called us to bear up under difficult circumstances and you have sent the best example to go before us in our place. Help us to follow you, God, in everything that we put our heart and mind to so that we could be a light to the world to show them how amazing the God of all creation is whose image we bear. In all these things, we ask that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.